Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at 9.42 a.m. on a Monday, which feels pretty weird. Usually I kind of like uh, hustle and try and get everything done for the podcast on Sunday night. So it's early, uh, so it's ready early on Monday morning. Well, you know, I kind of thought maybe I shouldn't murder myself every Sunday. <laughs> I know um, having football back on probably has a lot to do with that because I'm watching football on Sundays. And I don't know. I just thought maybe it would be okay if I got it done a little later in the day on Monday. Hopefully that's okay with you. I uh, hope this finds you well. Uh, like I say, I hope you're doing awesome. Today we are jumping into Genesis. Uh, it's the fourth week um, we're talking a little bit about Cain and Abel. Um, I've really just loved this series. It's, it's really the first series we've done uh, at different. Uh, we usually just kind of do one-offs. Uh, but this is really cool. It's, it's, um, the subject matter is a big reason why uh, our church exists, I think. It's allowing the opportunity to think critically about some of these older stories and potentially interpret them in a way that is different from a lot of American evangelical churches. Uh, maybe some of it is um, metaphor, some of it is uh, story, some of it is true. You know, it's, it's, it's using the wisdom um, and uh, critical thinking and research to kind of decide what's what. But ultimately understanding it doesn't really matter if it's all literally true, the, uh, the points of the stories are still the points of the stories. So anyway, that's what we've been doing for the past four weeks. Um, this week is, uh, as I mentioned, we're jumping into Cain and Abel. It's really great. We're going to get to it in just a few minutes. If you, uh, don't care about music, you can, you can skip ahead a couple minutes and get straight to Hannah. Um, but I wanted to share one song. We had a, uh, a new band member this week. His name's Matt Weimuller. He's a insanely good saxophone player. Um, so coming up in just a second, you're going to hear a song called Love So Wonderful with a sweet, sexy solo from Matt Weimuller. Um, I think you're going to love it. It's, it's one of my favorite songs that we do. Honestly, I think it's one of the best Christian songs out there these days. Uh, so many Christian songs have cringy, crappy lyrics, and I just really like the lyrics on this one. I think it's a song every church should be singing because it's just kind of embodies the type of people we should be as a church. Okay, we're going to jump into that in one second. Um, just one announcement for you. We are launching groups again. Please go to diff.church if you'd like to be a part of one of the groups. If you don't live in St. Peter, Tampa, if you're you know in another state, you can actually still be a part of one of our groups. Uh, you can just join the virtual Zoom group. Uh, we've got a Zoom group, we've got a Tampa group, and a St. Pete group. And you can sign up by going to diff.church and clicking on events. All right, here is Love So Wonderful, and then right after is Hannah. All that divides us, tear it down. Where there is hatred, may peace abound. In every temple, may we be filled. So divine. 
and mute Jared at the same time without tripping, falling up the stairs. <laughs> it's not really talent. I feel like it's basic human function. I'm just not that great at that. 
I choked on some water earlier this week, and I was around someone who is a bit nervous about COVID. And I was like, I'm not, I promise you, I'm just truly incompetent as a human. <laughs> I'm not sick, I just cannot swallow water. So sorry about that. <laughs> um, it is Hispanic Heritage Month. So before we jump into Genesis, we are gonna do, we are, I'm bringing to you one person every week that I think you should know, because they're amazing. And this person, this week, hopefully you can see that, her name is Dr. Ellen Ochoa. She, in 1993, was the first Hispanic woman to go to space. She went on the shuttle Discovery. Um, she served on a nine-day mission. And then she returned to space three more times. So what are you doing with your life? <laughs> uh, she has spent 42 days in space. Like a, more than a month off planet? That's, that's crazy. She has NASA's highest award which is the Distinguished Service Medal. And separate from that, she has the Presidential Distinguished Rank Award. She was also the director of the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas for quite some time. And she has six schools named after her. And I can't drink water. <laughs> so basically, she's an incredible human being. You should know her name because she's accomplished something absolutely fabulous. Dr. Ellen Ochoa. Seamless transition, now we're talking about Genesis. <laughs> so last week we talked about creation and Adam and Eve, and then the week before that we talked about creation, and then, you know, we've just been in Genesis for a while, and guess what? We're not going anywhere, because Genesis is really long. It's like 50 chapters. Today we are going to wrap up Cain's story, and we're going to talk about Noah and the ark. And if you want to do some extra reading, extra research, you can check out these two books, The Evolution of Adam and Genesis for Normal People by Pete Ince and Jared Bias. Highly recommend. Now, things started off so well in Genesis, didn't they? Like, God just created the whole cosmos, and, like, it was so beautiful, made an orderly, livable space, put his special people in the garden, Adam and Eve, and then by chapter 3, we have major problems. So not only have Adam and Eve been kicked out of the garden, Cain murders his brother. It's a delightful way to open the Bible, don't you think? So... Cain's story is very similar to Adam and Eve if you really follow it because his disobedience leads to death and discord. Just like Adam and Eve, disobey leads to death. And we talked about this last week, but just as a recap, the story goes like this. Cain and Abel are brothers living their best life. Abel tends all the animals. Cain tends all the ground, vegetables, grains, etc. Abel and Cain both present a sacrifice to God. Abel presents an animal. Cain presents some like vegetables and other stuff. God accepts Abel's sacrifice, which is an animal, and says, no, thank you, to Cain's. And then he is violently angry and murders his brother because that follows. That it's like point A, God doesn't like it. Point B, I should kill someone. <laughs> now, I have one question that we did not have time to get to last week. How did Cain and Abel even know what a sacrifice was or how to do it properly. If, in the traditional evangelical understanding, we've been taught like these are the only four people that exist on the planet, right? So how would they know what's acceptable and what's not? Mm -hmm. So the question is, why would God be angry about one kind of sacrifice and another? Like, does God really just hate vegetables? <laughs> I mean, if God hates vegetables, that's good for us who like junk food, right? This is 
kind of a puzzle unless we remember that just like Adam and Eve, we're reading a story of Israel in miniature, okay? So the key here is not how they did it. It's the kind of sacrifice they're offering. So later in the Old Testament, specifically Exodus, Leviticus, we read that the Israelites are commanded by God to give the firstborn of their flocks and the first fruits of their harvest. Meaning like, you have an apple tree, first apples, they belong to God. You don't get to eat them, okay? The first lamb that is born belongs to God. You don't get to have it. The problem with Cain's offering is not just that it's grain instead of an animal. It's that it's just a regular old offering of fruit or whatever he presented instead of the first fruits. Abel brings the first animals. Cain brings some stuff that was not the first. God, therefore, does not accept Cain's offering, and Cain is peeved. I was going to use a different word, but there's a kid in here. (laughs) So God, in a kind of sarcastic fashion, is then like, well, Cain, if you had offered a better sacrifice, this wouldn't be a problem, and your anger is your own fault, and basically you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. And Cain is like, how dare you? I know the answer. I will murder Abel. Okay, so then Cain is cursed for a time. He's wanderer of the earth. He's exiled, right? And Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. Cain is exiled from his family and from God, the presence of God. And his whole line of descendants are then a train wreck, an example of a people who are cut off from God. So the family tree of Israel does not include Cain's family. But then who? <laughs> In evangelical understanding. So if there's only four people, which there, we know there's more, right? Because Cain had a wife. We talked about this last week. And he was concerned other people were going to kill him. So clearly there were other people. If he was, oh, he's not afraid of like what? The ghosts are going to kill him. So there's other people in the planet. But Adam and Eve have another child. His name is Seth. And he has a son named Enosh. And then it says, when Enosh was born, they started worshiping Yahweh. Does that strike anyone as strange? So who were they worshiping before? <laughs> we're like, ah, yes, God. <laughs> what, is it the same one? I mean, we clearly think it's the same one, but that's a rabbit trail. We're not going to go down there. Um, but Seth, his line is far from perfect, but they are at least worshiping Yahweh, right? And his line is going to eventually bring us to Abraham, which we'll talk about next week. And then we get to a genealogical list, and then we get to chapters 6 through 9 in Genesis, where everybody drowns. <laughs> we go from one murder to, like, how many people were alive? We don't know. Millions? Probably not. The most familiar parts of the Bible are often the ones that we have the most difficulty reading with ancient eyes, because everyone's familiar with the story of the flood, right? We've got Noah and the ark and the animals marching two by two, hurrah. Hurrah. And it's just so lovely and so sweet. And like kids can color coloring pages about it. And if you grew up like I did, you can like make a flannel graph about it. And guess what? This is not a children's story. This is like a horror movie. Okay? This is not some ancient version of Bambi or the Lion King where God's like, oh, I know how to fix it. It's going to be so great. We're just going to build a bow and there's going to be very cute animals who definitely won't kill each other while they're on the ark. Like, I don't know how we could possibly have like lions and zebras right next to each other in a tiny enclosed space. That'll go really well. This is normally the part where people complain that they could not possibly follow a God who would do something like this, like drown the whole world, because the human experiment seems to have entirely failed. 
And the only solution open to God is to drown everyone. Animals, plants, people, kids. Now, this is where it really helps us to kind of leave our modern mindset behind. I know it's very hard. We cannot read this story as like a scientifically and historically accurate account down to the T of the past. Because then we get caught up in questions like, was it a global flood? Was it a local flood? Is this where the dinosaurs became extinct because there wasn't room for them on the ark? <laughs> but none of these questions help us see the story as ancient Israelites would have seen it. So the first thing that will help us is to recognize that actually Israel's ancient neighbors had flood stories very similar to the ones that we find in the Bible. And guess what? Israel's story was written afterwards. So they weren't even the first ones who were like, I know what happened. God did this. Nope. It was written after the other cultures already had. Now, the other versions come from ancient Sumeria, ancient Assyria, ancient Babylon. It seems like there really was a catastrophic flood that happened, possibly around 2900 BCE. Different cultures that experienced that flood gave different reasons for why it happened. So we have some kind of massive flood event that was some kind of a historical reality. But in the ancient stories, it talks about why it happened, not what happened. Now, if you are an ancient person living at that time, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that this catastrophe was for a divine reason. There was no other explanation. It's not a question of who did it. Obviously, God did it, or the gods. The question is why? Why would this happen to us? Now remember, ancient people had no idea of the earth as a round globe. We cannot blame them for this. <laughs> the earth was flat, okay? If you put yourself in that world, the flood story makes perfect sense. If it rains for days and days and the rivers rise and water just covers everything and then people die in mass, that was the flooding of the entire world. They couldn't send a text to someone a thousand miles away and be like, have you got water over there? <laughs> How deep is it? Is it knee deep? Is it hip deep? <laughs> they couldn't catch a plane out of the situation. They could only move to higher ground and the water kept following them. So for them, the flood was the whole world and the world included what they could see. They were desperate to know why such a thing would happen, right? So the two flood stories that are older, um, two of them, are relevant to Genesis. They're both written in the Akkadian language, which is spoken by ancient Assyrians and Babylonians, and Hebrew comes from this eventually. And the two stories are called by the names of their main characters. The Gilgamesh, maybe you've heard of this one, and Atrahasis, rolls off the tongue, like many biblical names. <laughs> so Atrahasis is the name of the first story's Noah figure. Now in this story, the flood happens because the head god is like, I gotta destroy humans. Why? Because they're making too much noise. So shh. Instead of saying shh, I'm gonna drown you all. <laughs> So Atrahasis, with the help of another lesser god who, like, is doing some back-channeling, builds a boat, saves humanity. Gilgamesh, the other story, this is, he's actually a historical character. He did actually exist. He was the king of Uruk, lived around 2500 BCE, approximately. The story, however, is not a historical count. Okay, so Gilgamesh in this story is like two-thirds god and one-third human. It has all these dealings with the gods. And then his friend dies, and he has, like, an existential crisis and needs to know the secret of immortality. He's like, well, people die? Well, dang, I don't want to do that. I have, must figure out how to live forever. So 
he goes on this quest to find one person who has immortality, and his name is Utnapishtim, another name that rolls off the tongue. <laughs> that is this story's Noah figure, who tells him he's the sole survivor of a great flood, and God, who is in charge of this great flood, had second thoughts and decided to spare humanity by telling him to build a boat of specific dimensions and put get as many animals on board as possible. And because he did this and they survived the flood, he now has been blessed with immortality. It's a very, sounds similar to Noah, doesn't it? In fact, the similarities get even more intense because all three stories, they're building a boat according to specific dimensions. They are bringing animals on board as well as their families. They're waterproofing the door with tar. It seems very specific. And then the boat comes to rest on a mountain and they send birds out to see if land is found. Now, that doesn't mean that one writer was like, I'm going to plagiarize you. <laughs> I see the story of Gilgamesh, and I'm just going to change a couple details, but pass it off as my own term paper. A+. Plus. <laughs> they didn't have turn it in back then. <laughs> if you're in college, <laughs> you get that joke. <laughs> so the stories were kind of in the air, right? Everybody, they're just passed out orally. Everybody uses them for their own purposes. But these are very similar. So it is not unreasonable to think that there's some kind of borrowing going on here. The question for the Israelites is, what is their unique perspective? Why would Yahweh do this to them? So for the Israelites, the cause of the flood is not because God was tired of humans because they were making too much noise. It's God's response to human failure. So in Genesis 6, there's two reasons. In Genesis 6, we find a weird passage that says the sons of God were having relations with women, human women. Now, the sons of God seem to be divine beings of some sort. This is not out of the ordinary for ancient religions to think that divine beings and humans were having some kind of relations. Think of Greek mythology, where this is very common, right? Uh, but it's not supposed to be that way for Israel, right? Because God created an order of things in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And so it violates the order of creation, and the flood seems partly a response to this disregard for the order of creation. But then in Genesis 6, 5, we find out that the wickedness of humans is just out of hand. God regrets making humans to begin with. Just like in Genesis 2, in the creation story of Adam and Eve, God is asking very human-like. God decides, you know what would be best here? I'm just going to wipe the slate clean and start over. But Noah is righteous and blameless. Good for him. We aren't exactly told what he did to get this title of righteous and blameless, but he gets to escape, and his family gets to escape, and the rest of the world, the world they can see, drowns. And from our modern point of view, God looks like Thanos here, right? Just like, dead, all of you. It would be better if you just didn't exist anymore. So, in fact, he's worse than Thanos, right? Because he drowns them. He doesn't even just snap his finger and make them not exist. Is mass killing really the best way for God to handle this? Like, couldn't God, being God, have found a different way to do this? Right? I know this may be uncomfortable. Let's just table that sort of thinking for a moment. Okay? For ancient Israel, just like other ancient cultures at the time, this cataclysmic, tragic flood had to be explained somehow. You cannot have an event of this size without an explanation as to why it happened. And I don't know if this is going to make you feel better or make you feel worse, depending on how you were raised in the church. But let's consider the possibility that Israel's explanation of why the flood happened is no more historically accurate than the other two. 
but it does tell us a lot about how they understood God and the place of humanity in God's world in contrast to the other people around them. God isn't just being grumpy or petty or angry here. God has standards. And the humans who are made in God's image and likeness that God placed all around God's kingdom, the world, to be exactly like God have failed this. Israel's theological explanation for this massive tragedy is that their own evil is what caused the flood. They failed in the one mission God sent for them, to be image bearers of the divine in the world. So God just wipes the slate clean, starts over by choosing Noah, the righteous one, a new beginning. Noah, that lucky guy, he's warned of the impending doom, and God's like, you know what you should do? Build a boat the size of a shopping mall according to a specific floor, man, floor plan. Noah does this, and the animals come on board. There's a song about that, isn't there? The animals, they came in, they came in by onesies, twosies. Elephants and kangaroosies, roosies. <laughs> uh, pretty sure there was not a kangaroo on the ark. Just FYI, they're not native to that region, okay? <laughs> so they come in by twosies, twosies, except for the clean animals, which come in by sevens so that we can make proper sacrifices. And that alone should catch our attention, right? We already talked about sacrifices with Cain. Where does the idea of clean versus unclean animals come from? It comes from Leviticus. God gives specific instructions to Moses and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai about all these things, about how you're supposed to do sacrifices and relate to me and worship me and blah, 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 blah. So boring. And they have all of these instructions. Well, these people would not have had these instructions, right? Noah did not have the law given to him on Mount Sinai because it was thousands of years later. So this is another example of why it is very safe to assume that this was collected, written down, at the time of the Babylonian exile for the Israelites, or slightly before, not when it was actually happening. And the story of Noah, if you read it carefully, actually echoes these same creation stories that we have a few chapters earlier, because on day one of creation, we learned about the deep, right, this chaotic mass of churning water that God tames and divides. Remember our snow globe illustration? We've got the waters above, the waters below, and this little dome of space that humans can occupy in the middle. And the dome, of course, came equipped with windows, which would be handy if you're planning on flooding the world again. And the order that God establishes on day two is reversed. So God actually reintroduces chaos to the world. The cosmos becomes what it was before, formless, empty, wild, waste, this, this churning nothing of water that wipes out all life. To the Israelites, this is fitting. God is giving them a dose of their own medicine. If God's creation behaves in a disorderly and chaotic way, then God will let the forces of chaos go so that the disorder is wiped away and a new order, a first order, is introduced. Side note, I have a bone to pick with that, the first order. There was already orders before this. I have many bones to pick with Star Wars, but I love it so much. <laughs> okay, so this is very disturbing, right? But it's the way the narrative goes in Genesis. It's a actually very fitting and understandable way for God to address the problem from the point of the Israelites. They're like, why would this happen? Because God set up the world this way told us to do these things, we didn't do it, 
we introduced chaos back into the world, so God's just going to let us, just going to give us what we are asking for. Now, the end of the flood story also reminds us of Genesis 1. It's like a mini creation story because God promises not to flood the earth again. Thank you so much. And God gives a sign of promise with a rainbow in the sky and again gives the same command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Noah and his family are the new creation, the new order. You might even say Noah's the new Adam. We're starting over. And then to close the story, God leaves this rainbow in the sky, promising the earth will not be destroyed like this again. Just so we're clear, the rainbow is not like the stuff of Precious Moments posters, okay? A ra- the rainbow is a bow. That is a weapon. So for it to be in the sky means God is hanging it up. God is not warring against humanity anymore. And starting with Abraham, God will then reveal a different strategy for addressing the problems of humanity. Well, that was kind of a lot, right? We're not done. We still have, we have another weird story about Noah before we close. So you might think that after this event, this horrible, horrible thing, that all their survivors would like breathe a sigh of relief and then turn it around and be righteous and blameless and keep their act together, right? No. Creation 2.0 turns sour in a very strange way, very quickly. So everyone gets off the boat and Noah is like, wow, I need a drink. So I'm going to plant a vineyard. He couldn't just go to like, you know, total wine. So he's like, I have to grow my own grapes and then I'll make some wine. So he does this and then has way too much and apparently passes out in his tent naked. Classy. Now, he has three kids. And this story is not a moral lesson about wine in the Old Testament, okay? It's actually not about Noah at all, but about his kids. So he has three kids, Shem, Ham, Ham. It's spelled like ham, but it's pronounced Ham, but honestly, who cares? These people are dead. You can pronounce it any way you want. <laughs> and Japheth. Poor Ham had the grave misfortune of going into his dad's tent to ask him something and discovering him passed out naked. And he apparently freezes. He's like, ooh, doesn't know what to do, runs away, tells his brother. His brother's like, okay, cool. <laughs> so they are like, we should cover him up, right? We don't want other people stumbling in upon this. So they go in with a blanket, they walk backwards out of respect, and they cover up their dad. And then Noah wakes up and is like, cursed be Canaan. Lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. What? What? Okay, he's enacting this swift and weird retribution because, okay, first of all, does Ham stumbling upon his drunk dad really deserve a full-blown curse? And why is the curse not directed at the person who saw him but one of his kids? Canaan is one of Ham's kids. And so not, not just Canaan is cursed, but all of his descendants from that point on. So all of Canaan's kids and grandkids and great-great, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as a people group are cursed because Ham saw his drunk dad. Okay. Now, remember, this part of Israel's story is told from a much later point of view. Who is Israel's arch enemy in their homeland? The Canaanites, who are descended from Canaan. 
The Canaanites live in the land that God promises to Israel through Abraham. They also are the people that the Israelites are trying to exterminate after they leave Egypt. They do a terrible job, honestly. The Israelites, historically, not very good at warfare. Um, and this story is a vehicle for the Israelite writer later to explain why they were so hated from the beginning. They deserve everything they got, including being violently driven from their homeland so it could be given to the Israelites because they've been cursed since the beginning. There's nothing we can do about it. It's just their lot in life because Noah cursed them. <sighs> okay. <laughs> and then, abruptly, the story of Noah ends. Noah lives to a ripe old age of 950, which sounds awful to me, honestly. And all of the descendants of his three sons are spread out over the world, the known world, I should insert, and their descendants make up 70 nations, a nice, round, perfect number. And so now, surely now, everything will proceed correctly, right? It will all be smooth sailing? Of course not. <laughs> Nothing is ever perfect for the Israelites. Remember, the word Israel means to struggle. So we have all of the struggle with Cain. Now we have all of the struggle with Noah. Now we have all of the struggle with Canaan. And then the struggle continues next week with the story of Abraham. But that's for another time. You have to come back for the thrilling next chapter. I was going to say conclusion. That's definitely not the conclusion. <laughs> the thrilling next chapter in the story of Israel and the weird first book of the Bible. So we have two more songs. I'm giving you another seamless transition here. Now you know stuff. Now we get to sing. It works perfectly. <laughs> we have two more songs, um, and then I'll come back and give you a benediction, and I will let our fabulous band take it away.